This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish in the Anglican Church of North America in Houston, Texas. Find us online at holytrinityrec.org. Find us on Facebook as Holy Trinity Houston, and on Twitter and Instagram as Holy Trinity REC. Enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Consider the discipline of the Lord your God. This phrase in our lesson today from Deuteronomy touches off a list of historic occasions of God's discipline within the memory of his people. The word for discipline here in Deuteronomy can mean admonition, chastisement, correction. Within our own lifetimes, we all can recall moments where we witnessed or experienced discipline under the hands of authority figures. One of the earliest and maybe, maybe just a few the memories I have of my kindergarten year was to witness an example of discipline. It was a Phoenix, Arizona area public elementary school wherein I saw two older sixth grade boys sitting in the principal's office with ashen faces waiting for the principal's paddle. Arizona at the time still allowed corporal discipline for students in its public schools. Just the sight of those usually assertive and fearless boys cowering before the chastisement made me as a four-year-old to never want to sit in that office with the same fate. Scripture, as we read in Deuteronomy today, contains God's response to our chronic problem of sin and rebellion through discipline and ultimately how all the chastisements we deserve for our sins were leveled upon Jesus Christ to satisfy the consequences of our sin, eternal death. This morning, let us recall God's love for us, even in his discipline, to give us hope in a world that is devoid of hope. First, it's important that we examine worldly or sinful discipline. This is crucial because far too often we can falsely equate the mistakes of our own authority figures that are sinful and flawed with the loving discipline of Almighty God. The very best of parenting authors in the Christian world will be upfront to tell us that they are sinful and flawed and have made many mistakes of their own in the discipline of their children. If discipline lacks humility from the authority figure, it will most likely be worse than the offense that's being punished. A bit of a clue for an example of worldly and sinful discipline was hinted at in our lesson in Deuteronomy with God's response and chastisement of the Egyptians. From the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, we see that the Egyptians went from bestowing blessings upon the Hebrews for the saving work of Joseph to generations later turning on them and enslaving the whole tribe. First, worldly discipline often acts to try to thwart God's blessings upon his people. This is seen in the Pharaoh being so jealous of Israel's prosperity in his land that he deemed to stop it by enslaving them. 
as the Hebrews kept multiplying and thriving even under slavery, Pharaoh kept committing acts of tyrannical discipline upon them. A second method of worldly discipline is to enact harsher punishments to keep the people under control. From ordering all the male Hebrew babies to be murdered after birth, to then ceasing to provide the needed supplies to complete their mandatory tasks, Pharaoh sought to inflict further pain and suffering upon the Hebrews to keep them down. Later in scripture, King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, sought this sort of discipline as well when the people at the start of his reign asked that he would lighten their burdens that their father Solomon had enacted upon them. The young king told them that he would enact stricter and harsher discipline than his father. The result was that he lost most of Israel that formed another kingdom. With Pharaoh driving up the pressure, the people were suffering under this weight, and God called upon Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let the people go free. As Moses and Aaron contended with the Pharaoh, the third area of sinful worldly discipline came forth. This is a phenomenon of relenting for a short time in order to avoid further calamity as Egypt experienced in refusing to let the Hebrews go free. We see this in our own time as well. An authority figure worries about how things are going due to their failed policies and they give in to what is right for a brief time. We usually see this in our own political system, harsh and onerous policies enacted right after an election to give way to lifting such or even enacting positive policies right before another election. Pharaoh did this several times in the midst of the ten plagues upon Egypt, saying he'd let the people go after suffering much to then revert back to slavery. This culminated with what we read in the lesson today in Deuteronomy, which recounts that the Egyptian army after they had reneged on letting the people go again, was drowned in the Red Sea, and Pharaoh was finally defeated. Seeing these aspects of sinful discipline, we must ask this question. How are we as God's people to respond under such pressure? We are called to pray for them and to present the gospel to them as St. Paul did in the example of his own life in appealing to the emperor. All along the line, we read of Paul seeking to use the opportunity of imprisonment by ungodly leaders to preach Jesus Christ to them. He then went on to die for the faith as a martyr at the hand of pagan, sinful discipline. Further going back to the example in Deuteronomy of the rebellion of the people against Moses and Aaron, we see Moses and Aaron interceding on their behalf that God would be merciful to them that he would be patient with them, that he would bring them back to faithfulness. We're not called to utilize sinful, worldly means to counteract the Neros, the Pharaohs of this rebellious world. We're called to continue to preach the gospel without ceasing, to pray without ceasing in the name of Christ. From our lessons and all of God's word, it's also important to note alongside what worldly discipline is, what godly discipline resembles for us as Christians, culminating in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 gives us a good idea. Surely, speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All our sin and the chastisement and ultimate final punishment it deserved was leveled upon God's own son, Jesus Christ, for our sakes to forever free us from the slavery of sin and death. As we read in our lesson in Deuteronomy, an important part of God's discipline entails remembrance, recalling what God has done in the past, especially acts of discipline. After detailing what happened to the Egyptians, we read of several instances of chastisements the Hebrews incurred upon themselves for their disobedience. Note that each of these resulted only after God had given them clear instructions of how they were to live. Verse 5 records, And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. At the beginning of their freedom from Egyptian bondage, God led them to the promised land. And he had 12 spies go throughout the land to gather information about the land before they were to enter it to take it in the name of God. As we know, the accounts, instead of obeying God, they listened to the fearful words of 10 of the 12 spies that told them not to enter the land. They thought it too dangerous. These 10, backed by what we would call a landslide vote against the matter today, rebelled against God and the four that pleaded with the people to still go to the land, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. God then intervened and dealt with the ringleaders and the discipline upon the whole generation that left Egypt was that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years and only their offspring would be able to enter. This discipline would be considered a judgment and a chastisement upon God's whole people, upon the entire church. You might ask the question, does God still discipline his church today on this scale? We can look to examples in church history such as Nicaea in 325, the first ecumenical council, where the biblical view of Jesus was codified while the heretic Arius in his quite extensive popular following throughout the church was admonished and chastised. Even though orthodox teaching prevailed, Athanasius, defender of the Orthodox faith, suffered for years after this council through exiles and so forth by followers of this popular heresy. It took decades before this heresy was rooted from the church. Often in the history of the church, elements of heresy that become popular results in decades upon decades before the Orthodox view becomes the norm again. We live in similar times. It's important for us to know and pray for God's truth to reign supreme and to wait on God as he works in the midst of his people, in his church. Heresy is often like weeds that take a long time to root out, weed by weed, bit by bit, patiently. I often tell people in the midst of the many controversies of our own time with roots going back 100 plus years, that God works slowly, patiently with his church, and the results are not immediate. 
He has not changed from taking 40 years with Israel to the same time frames with us. The other examples brought forth dealt with the subsequent rebellion of Dathan and Abiram against God's appointed leaders. In this instance, only a part of the tribe was dealt with and disciplined. God also to our day deals with us as individuals, families, and churches when people do not repent and refuse to turn to God. Again, as we learn with God's discipline, he deals patiently with us, long-suffering through his son, Jesus Christ. Our lessons today in 1 John and John outline how we are to turn from our sin. This sinful world, as 1 John outlined, is tough to overcome. It cannot be overcome alone or even by great numbers without God. Sure, people try to overcome it as hard as they can repeatedly. But as we know, Jesus accomplished the final victory over sin, overcoming this world. Our only hope and assured hope is to submit to him by faith. As verses 4 and 5 of the epistle stated, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is this that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This world is in its warped and sinful discipline is full of tyrants that seek our allegiance to give into their hateful rule as the Pharaoh exhibited towards the Hebrews. Only our faith in Jesus Christ alone that overcame the sinful world by his loving sacrifice can save us from this bondage of evil. We might pause here for a moment and state that once freed from the bondage of sin and death, why would we want to go back? Looking at the many accounts in Exodus and Numbers, one of the common refrains of the people when they complained about a lack of something in the wilderness was that they would be better off back in bondage in Egypt where at least they'd have food and water. The same sort of temptations faced the New Testament church and the early church for new converts with waves of persecution that threatened family relationships, financial stability, and even their physical lives. Persecutors gave Christians the option to denounce Jesus in order to be let back into the graces of society. Not much different from the Hebrews longing for physical sustenance, even if it meant living in bondage again. While tyrants and their hateful discipline of people under their promise, life, something they cannot really give, Jesus in reality gives it to all his faithful for eternity. This is why it's so dangerous to place trust in earthly rulers to the point we place all our hope in them. It eventually causes us, or can cause us, to turn away from Christ as king in favor of their temporary allurements. In faith in Jesus, we have life abundantly forever. Wicked rulers may tout peace, but we know it always fades away. As Jesus said to his disciples, After his resurrection, today in our gospel in verse 19, peace be with you. He then showed them the marks of the crucifixion still upon his risen body, and they were glad when they saw him. Again, Jesus said in verse 21 of the gospel, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Our lives in Jesus Christ are not to be passive, just waiting it all out. 
No, he said this in verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. He then sent them out, as we read in the later accounts with his ascension and the Great Commission and then the Pentecost of the coming down of the Holy Spirit. He sent them out just as Moses and Aaron were sent out to confront darkness with his light, with his gospel, offering all sinners the news that they can believe and repent of their sins, trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. Verse 23 brings us the last words of Jesus in this resurrection appearance. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus has given us his church the authority to communicate to the world that Jesus alone forgives sins when we repent and when we turn to him in trust. Now this authority is only possible by the grace of God through the work of the Spirit within believers, within his church. Such must be taken with deep humility. That is why in the midst of the life of the church, when people sin and are called to repentance, the church must act in humility and patience, just as Jesus does with all of us. Does the church get it wrong? Of course it gets it wrong from time to time. Does the church act sometimes more out of mechanical roteness than love? Yes. We must temper all we say and do under the love and humility of Jesus Christ. This is why church discipline is and always must be conducted carefully, patiently, reverently, and in the fear of God. Even in the most severe of church disciplines that we've been given in the New Testament, excommunication where the Christian is barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper until they repent, is full of the hope that the person will eventually return in repentance and to be received back into communion. As Revelation 3.19 states, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And in 2 Corinthians 2.7 and 8, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Both the Revelation and 2 Corinthians passage call the church to err on the side of grace and mercy. Love that if repentance occurs, the person is to be restored. When excommunication becomes something that pushes people out with no way back to the table, no hope of coming back to the table, it is no longer biblical discipline and is veered off into the tyrannical, worldly discipline worthy of men like Pharaoh and Rehoboam. Unfortunately, there have been rigorous elements in church history that went the opposite of what Paul called for with the penitent. The Donatists taught that people during waves of persecution that denied Jesus and even turned in fellow Christians to the authorities should not be forgiven and admitted back to communion. Fathers of the church, such as St. Augustine, taught that this rigorism was not Christian and must be rejected in favor of obedience to Christ and how to deal with those that have sinned and have come back in repentance. If we find ourselves under godly discipline, how are we as Christians to reply? Again, it is with prayer and patience. It is with submission to Jesus Christ and his church in a church that upholds scripture and faith in Christ alone. Sometimes for those stuck in their sins for a season of darkness, 
as some spiritual writers have called it, the dark night of the soul. It's to wait on God and ask for the church to pray for them as they go through the valleys. Most importantly, we cannot place timelines upon people. Again, this is a worldly tactic. Rather, it is to see that we are all described in Scripture as akin to branches of the vine, branches of the tree in need of nourishment, pruning, and sometimes even when the dead branch has fallen to the ground in need of being placed back into the tree by the vine dresser. God takes his time with us. We as human beings cannot see inside the hearts of other people. God alone has this power. We must all deal with each other through humility, patience, and long-suffering. May we turn to God's word to remember the many examples of his discipline in scripture to help us as we challenge sin first within ourselves and within others. May we take these words of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 as deeply comforting and encouraging. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. May God keep us humble as we serve him in this world to go forth to challenge sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we ever be wary of our own shortcomings, our own mistakes with discipline, to ask for his help, to exude his loving patience with others. May we ever turn to him in repentance, reliance, and faith in all we say and do to his glory. May we be ever encouraged to our call as Christians, just as the disciples were in our gospel as they hid behind locked doors. May we ever be brought to leave our locked doors behind to go forth in his peace, to offer his peace and his forgiveness to a world that needs redemption. Let us pray. Almighty Father, who has given thine only Son to die for our sins and to rise again for our justification, grant us so to put away the leaven of malice and wickedness, that we may always serve thee in pureness of living and truth through the merits of the same, thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.